To you, Father, this morning we come in the name of Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our King. We're thankful, Lord, for the many promises in the Word of God that if we submit to your authority, that you will direct our paths, that the enemy will flee, that the power of God will be manifested in us and through us for the sake of your kingdom. <coughs> Father, our desire this morning is that you will be lifted up, that Jesus Christ will be exalted, that in every way we will sense your presence here this morning. We invoke the presence of your Spirit and ask that through the Word, through our fellowship, through our prayer, that you will be honored and you will accomplish your perfect plan and purpose in us this morning. Father, I pray that as the Sunday School Hour is transpiring all over this building, that you will bless each student, each teacher. We ask that you'll be present, touching hearts. We pray for those uh, children who have not yet come to a saving knowledge of Christ, that even today might be the day in which some acknowledge who you are and turn to you. And we pray that for any of any age. And we pray for the service as it goes on at this hour also that you'll be very present there for the name, in the name of Christ, pray. Amen. If you'll turn to the 17th chapter of Exodus, Exodus chapter 17. Although the Israelites had witnessed the miraculous transformation of the bitter water at Marah, so named because of the bitter water, which had occurred a few days or possibly a few weeks before the events in the 17th chapter. They had also received quail in the evening and manna in the morning, miraculously provided by and the presence of God in the pagan Near Eastern world in which they were living and in which they were going to establish a state. It was to be a theocracy, but ultimately, of course, would turn into a monarchy. In this passage we're going to read to begin this morning, we discover that they're going to face yet another challenge. And the purpose, of course, of the challenge is that they might learn to trust God in every circumstance. In every circumstance. So if we can read, beginning at verse 8, Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out. Fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Israel has come to Rephidim, wherever that was. If we go by the standard uh, traditional belief as to Mount Sinai being Jebel Musa, down the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula, it is thought that Rephidim was to the northwest, maybe 15, 20 miles uh, from Mount Sinai. And it is here that they're going to have their first real taste of warfare since the Exodus. Why are the Amalekites, atta Amalekites attacking them? 
Well, we can assume possibly they feel Israel is a threat to their grazing land. Now, you might think there's not a lot of grazing land down there, and of course there isn't, or probably wasn't. But there may have been some because we know Moses took herds down there, and that's where he met God at the burning bush near Mount Sinai. And so this appeared to them to be a threat, but also it also seemed to them to be an opportunity for plunder. The Amalekites were related to the Edomites. Uh, they were the descendants of Amalek, who was the grandson of Esau. And so, you know, their, their blood relations, if you, if you want to call it that, to Israel. Who were they? Well, they were predominantly nomadic herdsmen, apparently. But it was, as was true of most of the nomadic herdsmen in that part of the world then, and in many cases even now, they also supplemented their income by raiding, by attacking settled communities and gaining whatever plunder they could. And so here was this motley group of people coming up out of Egypt. They'd certainly heard about them coming, and they figured this was an easy opportunity to pick up some plunder. We're told that they began attacking the stragglers, those who were kind of at the tail end of the group of the Israelites as they were marching to the south. What happened was Israel, of course, had no standing defense. Moses ordered Joshua to put together an army to defend against Amalek. Israel had no prepared and trained army, as far as we know. Israel was not an armed camp. They were people, uh, they were escaped slaves. So Joshua had to quickly go out amongst the people and recruit volunteers and then to equip them to fight a battle. Now we might say, where did they get the equipment? Well, we can't really tell. It's very possible that they scavenged some of it from the, uh, from the Egyptian army that was destroyed by God at the Sea of Reeds. And that's possibly where they got whatever equipment they had. But they had enough for them to face Amalek. Joshua led this newly recruited army into battle against these nomadic herdsmen. As he did so, Moses went up to the top of a hill overlooking the ravine, or not the ravine, probably the little valley uh, where the battle was to take place. And the scripture tells us that Aaron and Hur went up with him. Now what's interesting is you go in all of our study, we went through the book of Genesis and now we're thus far in the book of Exodus, we have never come across the name Joshua or the name Hur before. These two individuals are both introduced to us in this account here. We know very little about Hur uh, from what the scripture does tell us here and in a couple of other passages. What we do know about him was that he was apparently a very faithful man of God who was in the background most of the time. But in two opportunities, he emerged to the forefront. And one of those was right here, where he helped Aaron support the hands of Moses in intercession for Israel. And the second event will be described later on when he aided Joshua in governing, governing the Israelites while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the word of the Lord. Joshua also seems to appear out of nowhere here. 
All we know is that Moses commands Joshua to put together the army. Obviously, Joshua is well known to Moses by this time, but not to us. Joshua remained in the shadow of Moses for the weeks, months, years ahead until it was his time to step forward as Moses' successor. Joshua's name appears more than 200 times in the Old Testament. And of course, is the name given to the first of the historical books because it was probably authored or at least written by him. Now, as we read this scenario described for us in verses 11 and 12, let me just read those verses again. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. Day-long battle. And can you imagine what would it be like for you to try to hold the rod of God, a staff up in the air all day long? I don't know if you've ever tried holding something up over your head for very long, but your arms begin to ache and you don't know if you're ever... It's kind of like, and this may sound a little bit unspiritual, but sometimes they say, let us gather and hold hands to pray, and all around the audience we do that, and, and because we're kind of far apart, we stretch our arms like this, and after a while, all you can think about is your hands. You can't even think of the prayer anymore. I, I think that sometimes it's self-defeating. But uh, anyway... Uh, that was, of course, what was happening here to Moses. Now, the question might be, why? Why did it matter what the position of Moses' hands were as to whether Israel prevailed or Amalek prevailed? Well, as I look at this, to me, there seems to have been two purposes, at least, that can be explained or seen here. The first was to demonstrate to Israel that victory comes from the Lord alone. Victory to the believer comes from the Lord alone. These were green troops. These weren't trained men of war who, who had been fighting for, for a decade and were well armed and prepared for battle. These were green troops. Joshua went around, picked the strongest guys and stuck us. Sword in their hands said, we're going to go fight. And they you know, what am I going to do with this thing, you know? It may not be quite that extreme for all of them, but certainly for most, it must have been. And if they had gone out as green troops, I mean, to what extent had Joshua command experience? How many times had he commanded forces before? We have no record that he ever did before. Certainly Moses wouldn't have chosen him, chosen him if he didn't have some natural ability. But natural ability aside, unless God is in it, forget it. There will not be victory. If they had gone out in their own strength, green as they were, and crushed the enemy because God gave them the victory, you can believe that they would have been absolutely convinced that they had won the battle by their own prowess. <laughs> we're natural warriors. We can go out and win any battle. Well, I don't have this on the outline, but as I was studying this uh, last night again, this, uh, this passage uh, came, and I like to refer to it in Psalm 98, first three verses of Psalm 98. We read, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. 
His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made, no, made known his salvation, has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. And note this last phrase. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Jesus, we sing, giveth us the victory. God gives the victory. It is his victory to give. He gives Israel victory here and in other instances that all of the earth might see the salvation of God. That it is God who delivers, that it is God who is real, that it is God who has the might and the power. As a little bit later, we're going to be looking at Jethro. And, and as we study this passage later in, in uh, the next chapter, I think we actually see a point where Jethro becomes a different man. Because he says, now I see that this is the God above all gods. You know? The light and the glory of who God is shines out through his people because it is his victory which he has given to them. Not the victory which they have won by their ability and by their power. But it is God's victory, even as we read in that first verse. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. And he shares that victory with his people. I think secondly and directly interconnected with the first uh, purpose here is that God did this to demonstrate the power and the absolute essential nature of intercessory prayer. With his hands, Moses held the staff of the Lord aloft. He held it towards heaven as a prayer. And certainly out of his heart flowed prayer, and probably even out of his mouth flowed prayer to God for his people. And the Israelites, why did he go to a hilltop? Why didn't he just sit in his tent? He went to the hilltop so that as the people fought the battle, they could look up to the hill and see Moses with his hands high in the air. And as they witnessed his hands high in the air, they would be encouraged to know that he was invoking the power of God on their behalf. You know, there, the scripture tells us that we should go into our closet and pray secretly to our Father. But there are times when God's people need to know that God's people are praying for them. When somebody tells me that they've been praying for me, I am encouraged. And I trust that's the same for you. It helps us to believe that God is at work. And that God will help us because we are praying for one another. They were spurred on in their faith to believe God for the victory. I, I think most of those is Israelite soldiers would have to have thought, I'm going into battle, and I've never been in battle before. Now, they couldn't have shell shock because there weren't any shells, <laughs> but they could sure have battle shock as they saw swords cut flesh and blood flow and limbs drop off. I mean, you know, it's kind of gory. And, and you could just imagine how, how it could be so frightening that they could turn tail, which has happened so often in history. Well, the most tragic battles of the American Civil War was the very first battle at Manassas Junction, where both the Union and the Confederate armies were green. <laughs> Neither, for the most part, had been in battle before, and it was more of a fluke than anything else. That the, that the Confederates actually got the advantage in that particular battle. The, the Union just broke first, but they were both 
I, I mean, they were both shell-shocked, really. And when the Union Army finally broke and ran, the Confederate Army couldn't even chase them because they were just kind of stunned, too. Uh, and, and so it would be, certainly for Israel, if it weren't for Moses there on the mountain with his arms aloft to God in intercessory prayer for his people. God was making it crystal clear to Israel out there on the plain as they fought Amalek that he was there beside them, that he was in them, and that he was helping them in their battle. There were a couple of verses from Romans 8. In verse 26, we read, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit of the living God who indwells you, who indwells me, who indwells his church intercedes with the Father according to the will of God for that church. And then as you read down in verse 34, and who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. How can we lose if we are trusting in faith with the Spirit of God interceding for us and Christ himself interceding for us? The importance of intercessory prayer cannot be overstated. As it was, I think, Erwin Lutzer was saying this morning, he was talking about something very similar to this, actually, that the saying is that Satan trembles when even the weakest Christian is on his knees before God. Well, that's probably true. If it's true prayer, true intercessory prayer, to demonstrate that God, the victory comes from the Lord and to demonstrate the, the reality and the necessity of intercessory prayer, these are exactly the same reason why God requires it today. You and I, as it were, can go to the hilltop and hold up the rod of God on behalf of each other and behalf of the church and the work that God is doing today. It doesn't mean, of course, that we literally go to a hilltop, although that would be fine, I'm sure but that we meet together, that we pray individually, we pray as couples, we pray as families, and intercede for the work. The victory comes from God by His power, not by our strength or by our ability. We may be the most polished speaker in the world. We could be the most intellectual individual around. We could have degrees that go for, you know, a yard across the paper, and it isn't going to make a hill of beans if the Spirit of God is not at work to accomplish His purpose. Israel could have had a highly trained and efficient army, and it could have lost if it had not been for God's victory being given to them. And I don't think that we, we can distort this passage here in Exodus too much to make it apply to the need today for us to be intercessors for each other and for the work of God. To pray corporately and to pray individually. To see what God will do. Because the victory is already His. God does not know defeat. It's not possible. In God is victory. The evil one has already been defeated. But we need to appropriate that victory through faith and prayer. 
And I think the church is as weak as it is in many places in the world today because the evil one has convinced us that prayer is just kind of a nice little flowery thing to do and it doesn't have much to do with reality or with what happens. As you've probably heard and I've heard many times, if God's already going to do it, what do we have to ask for it for? He wants our participation. He wants our willing cooperation with what he is doing. He wants us to be the channel through whom he will work to give the victory. And so it was for Israel that day. As long as Moses' arms were aloft, the victory was Israel's. When they fell, you know, <laughs> I, I've heard it told. I've not tried it myself. I've heard it told that if you... Uh, take a weightlifter and uh, start him out with about all he can press. Have him do that a few times, then drop a few pounds, have him do that a few times. Gets to the point where he can't even lift the bar with no weights on it <laughs> because he's so worn down and fatigued and, and his muscles are so drained of energy. So you can imagine, you know, Moses' arms, <sighs> got to keep him down for a while and try to get some blood back in him. In the meantime, the Amalekites are out there slashing the Israelites, you know. And so finally, Aaron and, and, and her get the bright idea of let's put this guy on the rock and let's us hold his hands up. Three men cooperating together in intercession, holding up one another to see the work of God done. Now, we can't extract from that that the perfect number for intercessory prayer is three. Hardly. It's the principle. The principle of cooperation, of supporting one another, of joining with one another, and eliciting the victory from God through prayer. Scripture also teaches us that we can pray secretly to our Father in our closet. And that is not without its, not only its benefit, but its power. Because this one in the closet, and that one in the closet, and the other one in the closet, begins to make a massive number of people. The point is that we do it with faith believing the victory is already there and, it, and it's the appropriation of the victory that God has already won for himself by his people. The result of the battle, of course, is that Amalek is ultimately defeated and driven off. Amalek was driven off without plunder and certainly with considerable loss of manpower. It's very interesting to note that this is the first people, after the Exodus, this is the first people that Satan uses to try to destroy God's people. Why does Satan want to destroy God's people? Because God had promised that through the seed of Abraham would come the Deliverer, the Savior. All the nations of the world would be blessed through Abraham. But if Satan could wipe out Abraham's descendants, then obviously God's prophecy would be false. And so Amalek, probably unwittingly, certainly unwittingly, was to serve as that first effort to destroy the post-Exodus uh, Israelite nation. Let's read verse 14 through 16 of Exodus 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn, The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation 
to generation. We look at this and we think that is a very, very strong prophetic statement. I mean, we're talking about an extremity here. God is going to have war against these people from generation to generation. Utterly, his goal is to blot them out from off the planet just because they attacked Israel. A lot of people attacked Israel. A lot of people will yet attack Israel in its history. I think we can understand this a little better if we turn to the 25th verse uh, chapter of Deuteronomy. Read a couple of verses there. Deuteronomy 25, 17 and 18, and 19 too. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt? How he met you along the way and attacked among you the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God Therefore it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven. You must not forget. They came down and attacked the rear of the Israelite procession. The faint, the weak, the weary. Uh, those, uh, those that were you know, not able to defend themselves. God commanded Moses to write this proclamation in the book, literally the scroll that Moses was writing for a memorial. Under the inspiration of the living God and certainly, of course, due to his own sense of the significance of these events, Moses was apparently recording on a scroll all that God was saying and all the events as they were tr transpiring. And as he would record all of this information, he would then use it to later pen what we know as the Pentateuch, to put down the words of God as God would inspire him to write them down using this material that he had recorded as the events transpired. God promises to war against Amalek until the tribe was blotted out. And Moses was to record this in the scroll so that it would not be forgotten. They were to remember that Amalek is to be blotted out. And of course, from that, they would extract the truth of what God expects from his people. Because we read in Deuteronomy, they attacked the people of Israel because they did not fear Yahweh. They should have, because certainly they were not ignorant of what had happened. Because news had traveled all the way over to Midian of the victorious uh, march of the Israelites out of Egypt and the mighty crossing of the Sea of Reeds and, and, and what God had done. I mean, Jethro had heard of it clear over in Midian. So you would think the Amalites, the Amalekites, would have heard of it somehow and would have thought twice about attacking a people whose God was that strong, but they had no fear of the God of Israel. And so they attacked him like a bunch of jackals, the weak, the weary. God's desire to fulfill this promise created a situation in which Saul, 
the very first king of Israel, would reveal his disobedient heart and seal his own doom. If we turn to 1 Samuel, I mean, God has commanded them not to forget, which meant continue the war against Amalek. And so Saul does, as we'll read here in 1 Samuel 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the word, words of the Lord. This is verse 1, now verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. This is thought to have been south of Beersheba. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Notice the difference. The Amalekites attacked, the Kenites showed kindness. The Amalekites are to be destroyed, the Kenites are to be delivered. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and his people spared Agag and the rest and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lamb, lambs, and all that was good. They were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. As you read on in the next passage, we find that Samuel comes on the scene and, and Saul protests that he has done what he's been told to do. And Samuel makes that profound statement that, that statement that seems, I mean, it's, I just love it. Verse 14. What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? If you've done all the Lord has told you to do, why is there so much evidence that you haven't? Well, I couldn't help it. The people forced me. My soldiers made me keep all these good animals because we want to offer them to the Lord. And then comes from Samuel, the distillation of truth that is so profound for all understanding of Scripture in verses 22 and 23 of that same chapter. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed the fat of ram, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. I mean, how significant is it to obey the word of the Lord? Why is it 
that the dead churches of this world are for the most part the churches that do not honor the word of God. Where it is not preached, God is rejected. To obey is better than sacrifice. I mean, that, to me, that just echoes down the hallway of history. Bang, 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 off the hall walls, if you can imagine it. Down through the thousands of years of human history, to obey is better than sacrifice. God wants our obedience more than he wants us carrying out some kind of liturgy. That's why, you know, sometimes when I see people going through all kinds of gyrations and genuflections in supposed worship to God, I think, are they obedient? I mean, this is a wonderful display, but is it followed up by obedience? And that's where so much tragedy strikes the church. There's all this display of, of, of supposed worship to God, but then what do you find? These people off on the side are cheating the IRS and they're messing around with their secretary and all the kinds of things that are going on in the world. And then, then you know, it brings you back to the place where we're just looking at some kind of an emotional expression on the part of some and not a genuine expression of true faith, of true worship. To obey is better than sacrifice. And, and that first phrase of, of verse 23 is really frightening. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. It's like witchcraft, sorcery. And we think of that as being totally diabolical, anti-Christ. Well, that's what rebellion is. And that's why I, I know it pains us, for example, when our children are rebellious. Because often that rebellion is not just against you as parents or grandparents or whatever, but it's against the God that you serve and whom you represent. And that's what Israel was. Israel didn't just rebel against Moses. God said, they're not just on your case, Moses. They're, against, they're on my case. They're blaming me ultimately. Saul's disobedience and God's rebuke through the prophet Samuel set the stage for this powerful statement by Samuel, which, of course, was God's word through this prophet. The Amalekites would yet be a problem for Israel in the years ahead. As you go into the book of Judges, you find there are the Amalekites again. They will be weakened later by the blow that Saul strikes, but not destroyed, not wiped out. They would continue to be a problem even in the days of David before he became king, after he had been anointed, but before he was actually uh, put on the throne. David had to fight the Amalekites too. They attacked his encampment and he chased after them and he, he, he destroyed them. But we're told in that passage, 400 young Amalekites escaped on camelback. And then as we look at that, we find something really interesting later. Not much later, but somewhat later in Scripture. In the days of Hezekiah, about 700 B.C. or so, we're told that a force from the tribe of Simeon. Now, the tribe of Simeon was largely settled within the greater framework of Judah. But a force from the tribe of Simeon, we're told, attacked the Amalekites in a stronghold in Mount Seir. And we read these words in 1 Chronicles 5. They destroyed the remnant of the Amalekites that had escaped. They destroyed the remnant of the Amalekites that had escaped. And we no longer hear of the Amalekites in the history of the Old Testament. God fulfilled his promise to blot them out. 
God used his people to do it. But it didn't happen overnight. And it, and it strung out over a period of six, seven hundred years. But ultimately they were blotted out because God had declared that it would be so. And then at the end of this passage in chapter 17 of Exodus, we read that after Israel's first encounter with Amalek and their victory, Moses built an altar, an altar to worship the God who had given them victory, and he named it Yahweh Nisi. Yahweh is my banner. God is the standard under which and for which I fight. You probably have noted that down through the pages of history, men would give their lives to hold up the banner of their unit in battle. And, 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 and to display the victory was to carry the banners back and say, look, we got these banners of the enemy army. It reminds me of the Mexican-American War when Santa Ana was marching north to intercept Taylor, Zachary Taylor, who was coming south, and they fought a battle at a place called Buena Vista. And Santa Ana was a very puffed-up type person, and he always claimed greater things than he was able to deliver. And in the fighting, Santa Ana was, was defeated by Taylor, but in the process, he'd captured two or three American banners. And so we, when he went back to Mexico City, he marched as if he were victorious as he went back to Mexico City, displaying the American banners, I have won a great victory. He'd actually been defeated and driven off the battlefield. You know? but, but this was his display. His proof was these American banners that he had captured in battle. The Lord is my banner. The Lord is my flag. He is the one I fight for. He's the one I fight under. It's a wonderful concept as Moses there made a sacrifice to the God who had given, given them the victory, not by the sword, but by his might through prayer. Next week, we'll begin chapter 18 and look at the coming of Moses' father-in-law and the wise counsel he gives to Moses as Moses, brilliant leader, godly leader as he was, was trying to do way too much.